I V M. Thousands upon thousands of men on horses ride towards us like the unstoppable waves of a great ocean. We are standing in the front line of an immense square of hundreds of soldiers deployed on a hill in the otherwise flat open lands of the Punjab. We are waiting to fight off the deadliest invasion that South Asia will see in centuries. Next to us are dozens more squares, soldiers dressed in loincloths holding large thick wicker shields. Some grasp javelins checking the balance. Others hold long wicked lances and heavy swords. On the flanks of the huge formation are horse archers wielding short bows, mostly mercenaries hired from the tribes of these invaders. Behind them are heavy cavalry equipped with swords. In the second line, just behind our infantry squares are slingers, javelin men and archers equipped with long heavy bows with an immense range. Bright banners of white and saffron, pink and blue, flutter in the breeze, painted and decorated with emblems of gods and flowers and trees and birds and animals. These invaders came from the endless grass seas of Central Asia. They demanded gold. They were given gold. They demanded land for their horses. They were given land for their horses. But it was not enough. So they had begun to raid. and then they had invaded and they had been unstoppable they had struck like a scourge from the gods indian armies surrounded by huge circles of foaming horses skewered with arrows trampled slaughtered trade routes into central asia have been totally disrupted and many major cities have been sacked kandhara the crest jewel of the indian subcontinent has been occupied and many of its beautiful stupas destroyed and ransacked refugees have been streaming into north india spreading stories of the atrocities that these barbarians are committing while gandhara smoldered the flower of the gupta armies was burning away in the thorny jungles of central india putting down a rebellion by the nagas vakatakas and their tribal allies the commander who ended the chaos has recently spent months arguing cajoling making speeches bribing and blackmailing the wealthy cities and courts of north india to fund an army of his own supposedly only to save the subcontinent from this devastating foreign threat we are a part of that army we have served him for years we've been drilled trained taught how to fight in formations taught how to respond to signals taught to trust our fellow soldiers and to trust the commander he is not one of those fancy royal types like his relatives he eats with us he swears like us he sleeps on the hard ground like us he doesn't vanish off to perfumed palaces once the campaigning season is done he has proven that he deserves our loyalty He has proven that he has the skill and the determination to end this threat that thunders on the horizon like black storm clouds. Now from the top of our hill we see the enemy, the Hunas, nomadic horsemen riding fast stocky ponies slowly trot closer and closer so they can shoot us with their wicked bows made of horn, wood and sinew. Our army has managed to cut off their line of retreat while they were busy sacking a nearby town 
and they will have to fight us if they want to escape with their spoils. Smaller Indian armies also roving the area, ensuring that the Hunas have no option but to give battle. We are the bait. But we, standing here, sweat trickling down our brows and heads throbbing with the sound of approaching hooves, are ready. We have already been drilled in their tactics. They will try to frighten us, to terrify us into attacking or retreating. As they come closer, they suddenly charge, howling and yelling across the line. We are waiting for this. Drums break out across our lines, hypnotic beats mingling with the hooves of the charging steeds. Our army roars like a bloodthirsty sea and we pull up our shields. Archers draw their heavy longbows and fire over our protective screen. Immediately, we hear the screams of the Huna horses and the twang of their own arrows which rain down harmlessly on our formation. They come closer and closer, trying to scare us off, but our officers order us to chant and beat drums, commanding us to stay in position. Within minutes, our shields look like porcupines, bristling with Huna arrows, and many of our companions are screaming, arrows piercing their exposed body parts and leaking blood onto the dusty ground. But we do not break formation, because our general knows how to defeat Hunas. It is a psychological game. They can't terrify us into breaking our lines. Instead, we have to terrify them into breaking theirs. Arrows continue to rain. We continue grimly to hold firm through hours of the Hunas constantly trying to get close and break our lines, driving them off each time by holding firm and letting our archers shoot their horses. And then, as the sun reaches its sweltering height, they are running low on arrows. Some elite Indian cavalry divisions are sent out in a wide sweeping arc to set fire to the Huna baggage train, and the nomads halt in dismay and confusion as they see the columns of smoke in their rear. Now they have no option but to fight us or retreat. Their ponies are tired. However, our elephants are not. Deep bronze trumpets are blown, and before the Mlechas know what is happening, the army is advancing down the hill to meet them. On the flanks, our own cavalry and Huna mercenaries rapidly move forward and pin the enemy formation so they cannot retreat without abandoning them. In the center, the infantry squares reorganize into compact rectangles, and light infantry and elephants advance forward through the gaps. Then we, too, guided by the blowing of trumpets and the waving of flags, grasp our weapons and start to march forward, chanting. It's chaos! We see one elephant charge so close to us that its trumpeting almost splits our eardrums as the shrieking animal blows into a knot of terrified owners. With a sickening thud, horses and men are thrown screaming into the air as the mad animal tramples on anyone unfortunate enough to get close to it. Its riders laugh as they shoot arrows through the mist of blood drops and crunching flesh as the Hunas attempt to retreat. Slowly, the tide shifts across the line as our infantry reach the confused enemy and slaughter them. Anyone unfortunate enough to fall off his horse is beheaded. Horses are shot at and speared. There's blood, guts and dust everywhere, tearing up our eyes, choking up our throats. But the killing must not stop. Hours later, 
The Hunas have suffered serious losses, but have managed to retreat in good order. Somehow their exhausted horses have managed to carry them far away enough from our forces that they can now retreat back to Gandhara. A conch shell is blown and we rest our weary arms as a group of blood-spattered heavy cavalry trot up to us. One particularly glittering individual, dressed in armor made of overlapping metal scales, catches our eye. But he is just a decoy. It is the man next to him that grins with the exhaustion of one who has achieved a great life goal. He has the proud aquiline nose and wavy hair of all his Gupta relatives, but his body is scarred and mutilated with the marks of a hard life that no pampered prince has to go through. He tells us that because of our heroism, the Mlechas, these castless barbarians, have been expelled from Madhyadesha and the empire is saved. But he has one last deed to ask of us, his brothers in arms. He wants us to safeguard him for the rest of his life, to serve as his honored guards, so he can protect the empire while we protect him. We know what he's asking. But in the roars of adulation of the entire army, how can we raise our voices to say no? The brilliant white parasol which only monarchs are allowed to use is brought out and spread over his head and necklaces from the Huna loot are draped over him. A chair is fetched and a footstool. The man sits and puts his foot on the stool and captives are dragged forward to touch their head to his feet. The army cheers and roars as the man straightens, looking to the darkening skies as though he can see a parade of gods showering our victorious army with flowers. Skandagupta, the blessed beloved of the war god, will be emperor. There is a lot of debate over the shadowy figure known as Skandagupta and the events surrounding his rise to the Gupta throne. What we can say for sure is that he doesn't seem to have been first in line for the throne, but then no Indian king ever seems to be. Unlike other Gupta kings though, Skandagupta doesn't mention the name of his mother and he doesn't even seem to be a big fan of his father's. So whereas his predecessors would say some flowery nonsense about how they meditate on the feet of their fathers, Skandagupta just says that he came to the throne after his father had gone to heaven. Most scholars agree that he was probably Kumaragupta's son by a concubine or slave woman who was frowned upon by his posh relatives of high birth. Others say that Kumaragupta recognized Skandagupta's talent and appointed him as his chosen successor. I will let Skandagupta speak for himself. This is an abridged version of an inscription that he left on a rock in Junagar, the same rock where Ashoka Maurya and the Shaka king Rudradaman had left inscriptions because of the fact that it was near a holy spot where the subjects were bound to read it. This is literally an ad from the man himself and I've abridged it a bit to make it easier to understand, so take it with a pinch of salt. Victorious forever is Skandagupta. He was like the great eagle Garuda, who destroyed the poison of the proud kings of snakes. When his father attained the companionship of the gods, he humbled down his enemies and made the whole earth, surrounded by the oceans, subject to him. 
he alone has conquered he has uprooted the pride of his enemies the mlechas who proclaim his power in their own countries the goddess of royal fortune chose him herself after discarding all the other sons of kings the way i see it skandagupta is telling us politely that he defeated the serpent kings the nagas of central india and is establishing his royal credentials by referencing garuda vishnu's eagle the gupta royal standard he's saying that after his father died it took a while for him to humble his enemies and establish himself as emperor his conquest of the mlechas castless barbarians who can only be the hunas seems to have been tied up in this whole mess it seems quite possible that as i have hinted his military success and the fact that he was a son of kumaragupta seemed to have made him extremely popular and forced the fancy people in the gupta court to take him seriously so let's get to the bottom of this military success of his i'm sure a lot of us have heard that skandagupta defeated the huns blah 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 but why were the huns invading in the first place ancient peoples wanted pillage and loot but there must also have been deeper reasons for their move into south asia second we know that the huns were among the most feared and deadly armies in the ancient world since in our heads they're often tied into the story of the collapse of the western roman empire were india's huns the same as the european ones and more to the point when the western roman empire one of the greatest superpowers of the ancient world was repeatedly defeated by the huns then what precisely were the military strategies and tactics that ancient indians used to defeat them not just once but as we'll see repeatedly over the course of centuries to understand this we need to make a brief visit to the other side of the world to the mediterranean sea The Mediterranean is basically a huge mass of water positioned bang in the middle of a series of different kinds of ecosystems. Over the course of the last 2 and first 2 centuries of the common era, something strange happened to its climate. It remained remarkably uniform and generally quite warm, which meant that crops could be grown at higher altitudes and harvests were larger and more stable. Now that was great for the warring states of the Eastern Mediterranean, which were all ruled by dynasties descended from the generals of the Macedonian conqueror Alexander. they had larger populations to pour into their military machines and grind into a bloody pulp in their hair-brained attempts to subdue each other while the big fish busily chewed away a small fish was quietly growing in the background the roman republic now the romans were a pretty godforsaken culture compared to most of the mediterranean but they had one redeeming feature if i can call it that the romans were militaristic to the point of sheer lunacy even by the standards of the time They faced off multiple deadly invasions, taking severe losses, but somehow having a large enough population left over to field army after army. In one battle in the early third century BCE, soon after the death of Ashoka Maurya, actually, they suffered eighty thousand losses in a single battle, but still went on to win the war. They kept learning from everyone they fought until one fine day they found that they were the only superpower left standing. All the successor states of Alexander had more or less wiped themselves out and they now had the largest population, the best armies and political institutions that favored expansion at all costs. Now, the Romans present some interesting parallels in contrast to contemporary South Asian states. In the last season we talked a lot about the exchange of goods and ideas between these two areas. Now I want you to keep in mind that for the first couple of centuries CE the Romans were expanding into new markets across the maritime highway of the Mediterranean securing new goods in manufactures and building new roads to establish networks for the circulation of goods labor capital and of course armies manufacturing 
industries, if I can use that word, began to emerge in some regions, whereas other regions focused on resource extraction. Though the population was growing rapidly, so was the economy. Even at the rate of a few percentage points a year, over a couple of centuries, Roman incomes practically doubled. But on the other hand, consider the sheer expanse of the empire, from the cold, rainy lands of Britain across the Mediterranean climes of Spain and Italy to the deserts of northern Africa and the fertile river valley of the Nile. Microorganisms that weren't deadly to, say, Egyptians could be absolutely brutal to people living in, say, Austria. From the second century onwards, Rome began to feel the pain. Its public infrastructure and technological capabilities were simply not up to the task of dealing with these challenges, stuff that any modern state could squash like a buck. As the global climate cooled once again, food supplies not only within the Roman Empire but also outside, where tribes lived in less stratified but less economically productive societies, shrank. The Romans had an administrative apparatus that was, if not capable of dealing with plagues, quite capable of redistributing grain from one corner of the empire to another, which was not something that its neighbours were capable of. And so from the 3rd century onwards, these neighbours of Rome began to attack it in hopes of seizing food supplies. A series of political crises then began to engulf the empire. Some regions broke away and the great transcontinental trade networks were severed. It was a period of economic, political and religious flux, and despite a series of brilliant innovations, the western half of the empire was eventually overrun by these tribes that founded new Romanized kingdoms. The eastern half was much more successful because it had a stronger economy and would continue on for another thousand years. Look it up, it's called the Byzantine Empire and it's super interesting. Anyway, what the hell do I mean when I say that there are parallels to South Asia? Think about it. At this time, South Asian states also went through a similar process of connecting to wider trade networks, and state centralization increased agrarian output along with population growth. Unlike Rome though, the Himalayas, those grand mountains with whom we started this season, make South Asia's climate so much more stable and predictable. The frigid air of Central Asia can't move south, so what we have is a nice mini climate system all to ourselves. In general, every year the monsoons arrive on time and are stopped by the peaks, meaning you have nice predictable harvests and also nice predictable religious festivals and celebrations like we saw in episode 3. And this went on for millennia, thousands of years. Imagine the stability and the quantity of the agrarian output that South Asian states could call upon as compared to European ones. Unlike in Europe though, the monsoons also make it a huge pain for pre-modern South Asian states to build permanent roads. And the geography of the subcontinent is just so frigging diverse that regional states just make more sense, which means that there isn't really an opportunity for huge empires, except in the relatively uniform terrain of the Ganga Valley, where you can use rivers as highways instead. So no huge empires generally, but also no plagues, but also more political competition and surpluses, meaning more cultural output, art, poetry and so on. The only really big empires that you see are when one player has a massive edge over all the others. When the Maurya seize control of the urbanized regions of the Ganga Valley, for example. Or when Kushana horse archers outclass smaller Indian powers. And when the declining Kushanas left a power vacuum that the Guptas were able to exploit. That doesn't mean that Indian states didn't innovate militarily, of course, just that they had less opportunity to do so as compared to the Romans. As I've pointed out, some of Samudra Gupta's earliest coins show him wearing a Kushana military outfit. The coins of his successor Chandragupta II show him riding a horse and grasping a powerful composite bow, and the military historian Kashik Roy has argued that this is evidence that the Guptas adopted cavalry bows. 
that's not a bad argument because we know for sure that by the 3rd and 4th centuries, the entire world was beginning to feel the effects of a more erratic and cooler climate, except perhaps South Asia to an extent. The Kushana migration to South Asia might have been tied into this, as was the Huna migration that followed soon after, and it's quite possible that technology and military innovations were moving with them. To answer our first question then, these Hunas were not the same as the Huns whom the Romans fought. They were taller, paler and spoke an Iranian language, but they also relied quite extensively on horse archery. They reached Afghanistan by about the 4th century, by which time the Kushanas had lost most of their territory in the Indian subcontinent and were locked in a marriage-slash-war struggle with the Sasanians of Persia, vaguely analogous to what the Guptas and Vakatikas were doing. The Hunas bumped them off and neatly fit into the geopolitical triangle between Persia, Central Asia and South Asia, the same area that so many invasions of the subcontinent have come from. They absorbed what remained of the Kushanas and other nomadic tribes such as the Kedarites and began to search for opportunities to secure resources. And since, unlike the sedentary Kushanas, they were still recently nomadic, they had huge armies of cavalry archers that they could throw into battles. Think about the way that climate and environment are driving competition. If you're Roman, you know that you have a huge population and metal deposits to call on, so you lean towards armored heavy infantry. If you're Indian, you have a huge population but less easily accessible metal deposits but more elephants, so you use a mix of infantry and elephantry. If you're a nomad on the steppe plains, you have nothing but your herds of horses. You're trained from childhood to ride a horse. You know how horses work, you know how to hunt, and now because of climate change and because your population has been growing through trade with sedentary states, or because you're threatened by other nomads who want your wealth, you have no choice but to attack these established states and seize some of their resources. But these Indians have bloody elephants. So how do you beat them? How do you beat Indians? You exploit your advantages, the extreme mobility and range of your armies, and you minimize your disadvantages, namely your tiny population, by relying on terrifying your enemies to the point where they can't fight, or if they have to fight, fight in a place of your choosing. That's exactly what the Huns did to the Romans, and I think it's fair to assume that the Hunas did the same to Indians. Of course, like in all of history, this wasn't a black and white collision of civilization and barbarism. There's some evidence that a lot of Romans actually preferred the egalitarian society and more diverse diet of the Huns and joined their armies. On the other hand, the Romans had enough money to buy off many nomadic armies and hire some of them as mercenaries to fight against their former colleagues. Nomadic and sedentary states both had a similar goal, grabbing agrarian surplus from settled populations. It's just that nomads tended to have a military edge, whereas sedentary states had an economic edge. At the end of the day, it's all just people trying to get rich, whether it's by extortion or by making up social contracts. Now to our second question. What precisely was the strategy that Skandagupta could have used to fight off the Hunas? I suspect that the initial Huna attacks took the Guptas, who were busy in central India, totally off guard. In fact, it's actually possible that the Hunas chose to attack precisely because they knew that the bulk of the Gupta armies would be away and rapidly took over much of Gandhara. Initially, like with the Western Roman Empire, there would have been attempts to buy them off, but that only works for so long because of, well, the law of diminishing marginal utility. Soon, like every other Indian king, the Hunas were looking to expand. They ransacked and destroyed stupas to seize loot, likely using that to hire local Indian infantry to support their cavalry. They even took on Indian titles and issued coins like Indian kings to try and build up their support base. And now, once they had the support base, what would a Huna attack have looked like? If you're sitting on a horse, you want your enemies to be nice and vulnerable, not in a disciplined formation. 
you'll pretend to retreat you'll pretend to be defeated and when your enemies break formation you quickly reform blast them with arrows and send in your heavy cavalry to trample the shit out of them at a broader strategic level you'll focus on spreading chaos and confusion using your light archers to act as scouts and messengers you'll avoid meeting any enemy armies focusing instead on vulnerable targets like small towns and you'll move away before you can be pinned down now obviously an army composed mostly of infantry and elephants is kind of useless against that right except skandagupta somehow managed to do it at a strategic level the only way he could have forced the hunas to fight him directly would have been to cut off their lines of retreat maybe after luring them into sacking a vulnerable target and convincing them that his army was further away than it actually was but at a tactical level things were more complicated imagine that you're a nice north indian boy who has only ever seen horses in military parades now you're stuck in an army and there's a whole horde of howling hunas riding these big animals straight at you Your instinctive flight or fight response is triggered and you'll probably scrap yourself and run or go nuts and try to charge them especially if they've already killed a few of your friends and when you break formation they'll just speed away and shoot you to death or run you over from behind so to solve that problem skandagupta would have had to drill and discipline his troops to the point where they were able to patiently wait till the hunas were tired and bear the loss of their friends and companions His armies would have learned how to coordinate between all three wings infantry cavalry and elephantry and it's quite possible that he hired some hona mercenaries to assist him in this war using them as mobile light cavalry for scouting and skirmishing in an actual battle as i suggest it would have been quite difficult to pin down the hunas and there must have been other cunning plans that he implemented such as attacking their baggage train Broadly, the role of the infantry would have been to act mostly as cannon fodder, the cavalry would have pinned the enemy, and elephantry were likely used as mobile archery platforms and to deliver hammer blows and shatter the enemy morale. In case you haven't figured it out yet, yes, the battle scene that I opened the episode with was a conjectural reconstruction based on what Skandagupta has to say about the Hunas. He is the one hero of the Gupta lineage. from whom were obtained lessons in the organization of expeditions laid down on a board for lesser conquerors to learn so intent was he on restoring the fallen fortunes of his house that he spent days sleeping on the earth when his two mighty arms had come into contact with the hunas the earth quaked and terrible whirlpools were unleashed in their armies After vanquishing in a battle his enemies with their forces and treasure he placed his left foot on the royal footstool Maybe I'm reading too much into this but the interesting thing about the god Skanda is that he wasn't always just a nice sanskari son of Shiva he started off as part of a bunch of miscarriage causing deities and his popular cult was later incorporated into orthodox religious practice through mechanisms that we've been exploring in previous episodes but it also turns out Skanda was considered a god of tricksters and thieves Just as a chap called Manu wrote a textbook on dharma there was a chap called Kanaka Shakti who apparently wrote a textbook on how to be a thief with all the materials and methods to be used unfortunately that textbook has been lost what we do know though is that thieves called themselves sons of skanda furthermore despite how often kings boast about their conquests and warlike abilities textbooks like the arthashastra insist that they should only resort to an open battle when they absolutely have to 
all this i think might point to the fact that ancient indian generals and commanders were much wilier and more cunning than we give them credit for and that they understood logistics and maneuver raiding and planning and that skandagupta was particularly adept at this game given that he specifically mentions it in his inscriptions unfortunately the bugger didn't leave us any primary written accounts of how he actually beat the hunas All we can say for sure is that he did defeat them sometime around 455 CE but not completely as we'll see. Thanks man. You're welcome. Now continue with my story and be more polite. No sir, I retain my creative freedom to swear at you because see, you had so much potential. Aside from your very important father, you came from almost nothing. What horrors did your mother go through to make you what you were? What horrors did you see? What did you do? How did you feel about your father, about the family that wronged you that you had to save? But you did it anyway. You dominated most of North India. You appointed your governors in Gujarat. You ordered the erection of great pillars, defeated two devastating military challenges. You held together the Gupta political network somehow, and you were the last person to do it successfully. Well, why didn't you start with that? Much better. Carry on. Yes, sir. So on the face of it, things went great for Skandagupta, right? Son of a minor concubine, rose through the ranks of the army, killed lots of hunas, became emperor. But well, things are never that simple. Remember, Skandagupta had elder and more legitimate half brothers who had better political networks than him. However, given the fragile state of the overall imperial network, none of them seems to have wanted to form a faction and take the field to challenge him, which might have forced vassals to take sides and ended up shattering the empire. Instead, they ganged up together and forced him to reach a political settlement. His eldest half brother would also take the throne as Chandragupta the 3rd, and he would have the authority to issue his own coins. Skandagupta would be Maharaja Adhiraja. He would be the one to issue land grants and receive the obeisance of the masses. But Chandragupta the 3rd, the more prestigious son of Kumaragupta, would also coexist with him and it would be his highborn sons, not Skandaguptas, who eventually succeeded to and lost the Gupta throne. If you ever think life is unfair, Skandagupta, this most tragic of the Gupta monarchs, would agree with you. Merit counts for little if you don't know the right people, but knowing the right people usually makes up for not having merit. Now, aggressively coexisting with these meritorious gentlemen was a new king ruling in Gandhara, who issued similar gold coins but made more primitively. On them he wears armor and rides a horse wearing a crown emblazoned with the image of the moon. His name was Prakashaditya and he was a Huna. And he was not done with the Guptas yet. I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at @akanisetti that's a k a n i c t t i or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well at @ivmpodcast.